Hey, Sherpa Network. I'm Tess Diaz, executive producer of DomainSherpa.com, and today we are bringing you a very special show. At domain names create equality, open connection on the internet. And this show is typically a free educational platform for teaching investors and entrepreneurs how to level up their business and change their lifestyle, how to build your community and create allies within your community to level up again, um, also for general personal and professional growth. In particular, we discuss perspectives on how to speak to others when trying to sell a domain name, which is a unique asset class. Not everyone understands the vocabulary surrounding it. So today, we're, we're really utilizing that perspective and this platform to demonstrate to you what leadership and access looks like to have words to add to a particular conversation, a conversation about what's going on in our country and our world, but has been going on for many, many years that not many of us have discussed. Um, we all look at cognitive biases and principles that affect, say, your UX. Um, but we need to really look at today and discuss something that can make us pretty uncomfortable. Um, today, we're not doing an interview like usual. Rather, this is a curated conversation. We all have our best intentions, but if we can't get uncomfortable, we can't level up. Let's do this together. I would like to introduce you to our four panelists today uh, briefly. Uh, first, we are joined by Taye Selassie, New York Times bestselling author. Taye is also an acclaimed public speaker and screenwriter. She's educated not only at Yale and Oxford, but via her global life experience, which has motivated her to speak internationally for many years on the topics we'll be discussing today. Her 2015 TED Talk, Don't Ask Where I'm From, Ask Where I'm a Local, has reached over 2 million viewers. She's currently writing her second no novel in Lisbon. Thanks for joining us, Taye. Pleasure. Hi. Braden Pollock, angel investor, primarily for technology startups. He also owns and operates several businesses himself, frequently acquiring smaller companies to roll into them. In addition, Braden invests in high-value domain names as an alternative asset class. Hi, Braden. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, Alvin Brown, strategic consultant um, and publisher. He runs kickstartcommerce.com and dnadverts.com, which are resources dedicated to sharing digital disciplines and, pra and best practices of buying, selling, developing, and investing strategies for domain names. Alvin is an active domain investor and developer himself and frequent contributor to key publications in our industry. Hey, Alvin, how you doing? Hey, Tess, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, Andrew Rosner is the publisher of this show, Domain Sherpa. He is also CEO of the leading domain name brokerage firm, Media Options. He is a thought leader in this industry, but also an avid angel investor and serial entrepreneur. He joins us today as a global citizen. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Tess. Hello, everybody. Um, Andrew, I'd like to turn it over to you to um, give a little framework for this show and your thoughts. You um, 
uh, you have a lot to say. <laughs> so uh, I was inspired to host this conversation today uh, because of a blog post that Alvin wrote and an Instagram post that Taya made. Um, and I found myself uh, with a lack of words to bring to this conversation uh, with a, a, a lack of, I think, understanding about what I could do, what I could say to add to the conversation. And so uh, it, it's been a short but, but very uh, empowering journey uh, in organizing this conversation and thinking about what I wanted to bring to it or what I wanted it to achieve. And um, so I, I'd like to start off today with a very clear and simple statement uh, that should go without saying, uh, however, inherent to and at the root of the problem of systemic racism is the lack of stating the obvious. Black lives matter, period, full stop. It is a black and white matter pun intended, it is binary. Either black lives matter or they don't. So to be clear, I, my colleagues, my family, and I hope all of you and all of my friends and acquaintances agree unequivocally that black lives matter as much as white lives. If you feel that they don't matter or they matter less, then you are an asshole, period, full stop. If you reside in the later camp, I can't help you and I don't want to spend my time, resources, or energy to try. You come from a position of willful ignorance and although some people may find sympathy or sadness for you, I find only spite and anger. But for the sake of civil discourse, I will restrain from that anger and I channel my resources in more constructive ways or so I hope. If there is one thing that I personally hope as a privileged white man, uh, to get out of today's conversation, or one thing that I feel I can do to support this cause in a more material way than just a hashtag or blacking out the logo of our website or some other trivial virtue signal or temporary action with no economic or social cost to myself, I hope to demonstrate what white privileged male allyship on this topic could look like. Domain Sherpa, as Tess said before, is an educational platform that is, is and always has been dedicated to one mission, to provide unbiased and authoritative information for the, from the experts to help investors, entrepreneurs, improve their business and economic situation, to level the playing field. I firmly believe that the greatest path to equality and the most sustainable future for all regardless of your skin color, heritage, economic status, locality, or religion, is equal access to economic opportunity through education, mentorship, and leadership. As simple and as nice as the, all of that may sound, what I think we'll hear from today's conversation and realize is that access is the key, and access is what has been denied for too long to too many. It is my belief and hope that the domain name industry offers an unparalleled opportunity, in theory at least, the world over for everyone to learn, develop, and economically gain no matter who you are. Domain names don't care what color you are. 
Our conversation today is not just about domains, but about opportunity and oppression, gatekeepers and key holders. It is with tremendous pride and humbling gratitude to share this conversation today with one of my wife and my closest friends here in Lisbon, Tai Selassie, one of the most intelligent and thought-provoking humans I personally know, and my friends and colleagues from the domain industry. And I hope that all of you enjoy and learn something from today's conversation, as I hope to. Thank so. you so much, Drew. I do want to mention to our audience, just because the world changes so very much, that we're filming today, Thursday, June 18th. So Lord knows what's going to happen tomorrow. I just <laughs> thought I should mention that. Yeah. yeah. Um, should I say what time it is? Taye, uh, <laughs> um, um, tell us more about you. Sure. Um, I'm black. My life matters. No, no, no. I, yes, I, yes, yes. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. We'll just, you know, start with the basics. Um, right. So I live in Lisbon, which is how I know Drew and how I've come to know what little I know about your deeply fascinating industry. I have lived in New York, in Berlin, in Rome. My family is mostly West African with a little bit of British Empire sprinkled on top. I was born in London. I have three passports. I am, as I describe myself in my TED talk, multi-local. I travel a lot. I, uh, since publishing my, my debut novel and giving my TED talk, I've traveled even more, often speaking around the world on subjects to do with internationalism and international identity and so on and so forth. In this moment though, Today, June 18th, as you said, Alvin, the day before June 19th, June 19th Eve, I am a human being deeply um, moved by the unprecedented display of concern and anguish on the part of my fellow human beings across the globe. I am heartbroken that it's taken this conversation so long to begin but above all, heart warmed and encouraged that this conversation has sparked off the way that it has. And so when Drew um, reached out and asked me the question that so many people are asking me at the moment, and I should say so many people in Drew and Braden's position, but also so many in yours, Tess, and in yours, Alvin, people just asking, what am I meant to do in this moment? I get that we are living through the twin unfoldings of a pandemic and a revolution. It's not easy for me to know what role I'm supposed to take or what position I'm supposed to play. And so when Drew asked that question, I was all too eager to engage. And so that's who I am and, and why I'm here today to engage with that question, what can we do? What can you do in your industry? What can we do as human beings? What's expected of us and what's the best approach we can help? Thank you so, so much. Really, um, you know, if we can't change the entire world, uh, what can we change? Whether it's our business, a friendship, uh, you know, we're here to look at our circle of influence and to make change where we can. Um, Correct. Correct. We're trying to change the world. We're, we're trying to change some minds. Yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely. 
And I would argue there, that is actually the first step on the journey of a thousand miles that leads to the change of the world. So right. um, to, to drill down into the very specific question that I've been asked, it is, what can I do? And my conversation with Drew began with an answer that I gave to one friend and then to 10 and then to 100. And then I thought, right, let's just put this um, on my soapbox. And yeah. this is what I said. I'm a novelist. I love alliteration. <laughs> my TED Talk is based on three R's. Now I've got four. <laughs> I've said to every individual asking that question, what can I do? I've said, look no further. Do not tear out your hair. Do not open that bottle of red, at least not until I get there. Just do these following four things. Repost, reflect, reinforce, reach out. And what does that mean? That means repost. Find content between June 1st and June 7th, what feels like in a different era now. <laughs> there was a hashtag movement called Amplified Black Voices. That was confusing for many people because they didn't know what that meant and they didn't know what they were supposed to do. You can still do it. June 7th is gone. The movement lives on. So the idea is to find some content written by, it was, sorry, it was Amplified Melanated Voices, which made me smile. <laughs> as, as you can see, Alvin and I enjoy a very healthy melanin content, which protects us from the rays of the sun and gives us this healthy glow. So the idea is find someone with a similar melanin content who has a voice, who's using it online, your space, and amplify that person's voice just by reposting something that you've read, something that you liked, something that taught you something, something that you've learned. So repost is pretty simple. I think um, most people tuning into Domain Sherpa know what that means and how to do it. So that's repost. Yes. Reflect. Maybe that's where it gets a bit um, amorphous. Reflect for me, and I had this conversation with Drew, I will not dig into it now because I don't want to monopolize the time. But reflect for me is rooted in the question. Not simply do Black Lives Matter, as Drew has said, we believe that answer to be self-evident, but perhaps how have I been unaware of the ways in which racism has operated in the society in which I live? Different question than how have I been racist? Am I racist? Are my friends racist? Is my uncle racist? I don't think those questions are useless, but I think that they're less helpful. So reflect for me begins with asking what is it that I can see and know today that I haven't seen or known before. Reinforce is really simple. I've said reinforce the troops in the field. I live in Lisbon. I've marched in Lisbon, but I have not marched in Brooklyn. I have not marched in Los Angeles. God knows I wish I could march in London. I cannot do that. What I can do is I can log on to Color of Change or any organization of my choice and send money. It's really easy, donate online. That's what I mean by reinforce, but I like to keep it in the alliterated metric. So I call it something that starts with an R spend money and then reach out. I think this has been, um, Tess, I love what you said about if we can't get uncomfortable and if we can't get uncomfortable together, we are probably not likely to be in a position to affect that change, to change minds mm -hmm. as you say, Braden, to change the world. So I'd like to believe. So reach out means, and this is exactly how I said it to my community, find the least woke member of your family your work community, one of your 900 WhatsApp groups. You know who they are, you've heard their ridiculous comments and you've laughed awkwardly. Find them, call them, text them, WhatsApp them, and introduce this conversation to them. If you don't know where to start, I've said, there is a woman named Heather McGee who has done all the work for you. Heather gave a TED talk 
um, that just went online magically, I have to say, at the beginning of this <laughs> moment called Racism Has a Cost for Everyone. Heather is a policy, an economic policy expert. She loves money as much as she loves equality. And her TED Talk, as all TED Talks in 15 minutes, just gets to the heart of the matter. So again, what can I do? Repost, reflect, reimburse, reach out to the least woke members of your community. If you don't know what to say, send them Heather's TED Talk. That's Heather McGee, TED Racism has a cost for everyone. And that's it. And then we can drink that red. <laughs> Especially if it's Drew's red, because. <laughs> um, you know, well Tate, said. Um, I think repost, we're all good on. Um, but reflect. Well, well, some people didn't even really get that. And they just breezed through the first week, business as usual. But yeah, let's assume. I, I apologize. I meant, I think our audience understands it, um, <laughs> that, they, that it's time. Um, but reflect, let's start the conversation there. So I am a woman in tech, 15 years in the domain industry, and I'll tell you, us very few and far between women 15 years ago, boy, did we make sure to connect with each other, help each other out, protect each other, encourage and support each other. Um, but I had never reflected on if I did that for other groups who may feel disenfranchised um, in whether the tech industry or anywhere else. Um, I think what affected me is the lens with which I saw the world and it's time to reflect a little more and then we can, you know, reinforce or reach out after, after that. Um, um, I'm gonna open that up to you guys. Let's talk a little about reflections that we've had, insights that we've realized over the last few weeks, months, or in your lifetime. You made, you made a good point um, that my sister brought up to me when I was having a conversation with my family about this. Um, you know, what, she asked me a question. She said, well, you know, you've come a long way from from my background, and uh, you know what was it that allowed you that opportunity? Who was it that opened the door for you? What were the things that allowed you to do what so few people do, which is climb a ladder? And you know. That was a really powerful question for me personally. I, I, I actually spent quite a bit of time thinking about it. I didn't have an answer for her right away. And in thinking about it, I did come up with a couple of people that opened the doors for me, a couple of very specific moments in time, circumstances that uh, had things gone another way, I probably wouldn't be here today. And so, you know, in, in reflecting, you know, and, I, and, then I, and then that led me to, you know, trying to think about this with empathy and thinking, okay, I've identified a couple of very key points in my timeline that allowed me this opportunity. I've identified a couple of people in my timeline that showed me the way, opened a door for me, uh, made something possible that may have otherwise not been possible or may have been a lot harder to accomplish. And um, I asked myself, 
if I didn't change any other circumstances in my life, except for the, the color of my skin, would those opportunities have been awarded to me? Would those people have helped me? And the honest answer is no. And the honest answer, as I continued on that reflection, and I started thinking about some of the horrific videos that I watched, the ones that make me so freaking angry, uh, particularly as it pertains to police brutality and the criminal justice system, as I reflected on that, and I'm thinking to myself, if I don't change anything in my life, except for the color of my skin, and I think back to not just those circumstances of opportunity, but also the circumstances of conflict and challenge, where would I be today? And the conclusion that I came to is I'd probably be fucking dead. I'd be dead. And I'm a hothead. Everybody that watches this, at least from the domain industry, knows that. I'm a bull in a china shop. I want what I want and I will get it. I don't care. I will run you down if you stand in my way. Uh, and that is a luxury. That is a privilege that I have as a white man. And I may have never in my life reflected on that until now. Um, and so I think I, I thought about it and it was like, okay, you know, I was 22 years old and I was driving up to Canada, to Montreal from Rhode Island in my brand new, this was the first brand new car I ever bought in my life. Uh, you know, I, I was single at the time, although soon to be married. Uh, I was making good money. I was in the fish business, selling seafood commodities. I was doing great. And especially for, for my age, I was far ahead of, of my peers. And I was feeling pretty damn good about myself. And I'm driving up to Montreal from Rhode Island. I got off of work on Friday afternoon early. And I'm supposed to meet my friends for dinner in Montreal for the Formula One races uh, that weekend. And so I'm supposed to be up there by 7.30 or so to meet them for dinner. And I'm flying through the state of Vermont. When I come around abandoned, there's a state trooper there. And I'm going 138 miles an hour in my BMW. And I get pulled over. And uh, gun-wielding... Uh, 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 state trooper comes to the door and, and you know i was semi scared semi laughing to myself prior to the gun wielding state trooper exiting his car i was like what an idiot you stupid idiot what have you done but i pulled over and i thought okay i'm gonna get a really bad ticket this is gonna suck and then i'm gonna go meet my friends and have dinner in montreal uh this guy comes to the car with a gun I mean, screaming, gun pointed at the window, at my face, screaming, put your hands up, slowly open the door, get out of the car. The moment I even cracked that door open, he flung the door open, he grabbed me, threw me on the hood of my car like a sack of potatoes, handcuffed me, put me in the back of his car, proceeded to search my car where I had a joint in the visor. And uh, about 45 minutes later, he comes back to the car, opens the door, sits down in the front seat, and just starts breathing heavy. And I didn't know what to think. I was scared shitless. And this man, after really, I, I, I have no perception of time to be honest with you, but, but after some period of time, turns, he was not looking at me. He turns and he looks at me and he says, I'm gonna be honest with you. I thought you were gonna be some gun-wielding 
crackhead who was, no, no, sorry. I, he said, you were either going to be a gun-wielding crackhead or, and this was just after 9-11 and we were going to war all sorts of ways. And he said, or you were a vet who was fleeing the country to go AWOL. And those are the two options that he presented me with. And he said, you don't appear to be either one. And so I'm confused. Why were you driving that fast? I've been a state trooper for 30 years and I've never seen anybody drive that fast on my road. Why were you driving that fast? And do you understand what you were doing? And, you know, I don't need to tell the rest of the story except for one part, which was he let me go. I got off with absolutely no consequences. I literally was given a ticket for, it was like a $1,500 ticket, okay? But the, the, the reality is that in the state of Vermont, I, I'm going up more than double the speed limit. That's a felony. The, at a minimum, my car should have been impounded. I should have spent at least one night in jail. I should have gone to a trial. I probably should have been convicted. I would be a convicted felon. I would no longer be able to vote. I may or may not be able to continue to pursue the career that I was already in. And I may or may not have flown to Germany two months later, gotten married and started this business and, and be sitting here with you today. And More that's likely, skipping the part about the joint too. Oh, all of it. I mean, oh, he, actually the reality is he didn't find the joint. I, I actually got incredible. He didn't find the joint, but, but yes. Um, Maybe he was heavy because he actually had found the joint and that's what took him so long. To get <laughs> I didn't want to be the one to say it. Yeah, I thought that myself. I thought, I mean, did you find the joint is the question when you got back on the Oh, I sure as hell found it. The moment I crossed the Canadian uh, border, I found that joint. Okay. Let me tell you something. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the point is just this, and I don't want to over-dramatize this, but, 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 but it really stood out to me. It's like, you know what? I, I, I really... There's absolutely no way, because that is one of an absolutely, you know, probably more stories than most. I have a lot of stories that are just like that. And the reality is, is that my personality, my absolute dead set belief in my personal sovereignty and freedom, the moment that somebody would challenge that for me, I wouldn't sit down. I wouldn't, as you so eloquently said last night, Ty, uh, that a friend had said to you, put your head down and said, yes, sir. I, I, I wouldn't do that. And I would probably be dead. And that makes me angry because, because it's self-evident why, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, in reflecting, that, that's what I've sort of reflected on is that like, what, how did we get here? You know, I want to, I'd like to add to that because it, it reminded me <clears throat> very, very similar situation. I was in my 20s. I was doing 130 down the freeway. I get pulled over and uh, I, whenever I got, I got pulled over a million times because I have a lead foot. Um, and I would always have my hands up on the steering wheel, you know, like this, so the cops could see me. So, you know, a cop doesn't know what they're going to find when they, when they pull somebody over. So it's so that the, the cops are more comfortable coming up. So I learned to do that early on, but I got, when I got pulled over the exact same scenario, I, I was not at all frightened. 
I mean, I was, I was pissed that I was getting pulled over that I got caught, but I wasn't frightened for my life or that anything was going to happen to me. I just knew I was going to get a ticket. Now the cop did read me the riot act. Um, and I did end up in court, but because I was going so fast, but I didn't get arrested. My car wasn't impounded, wrote me a ticket and went on my way. And, you know, for a lot of people, particularly in the U.S., uh, African-Americans don't have that kind of experience. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that until just now hearing that story in this context, right? Mm -hmm. I had an entirely different feeling and emotional experience going through that than other people would have. And, and it's because of my white privilege. Can and that leads to, oh, sorry. Oh, it leads to different behaviors too. So if you're worried that you might be dead in 10 minutes, then you're going to be sweating and shaking. And then all of a sudden that's suspicious and it just kind of, you know, um, self-perpetuates. Yeah. Yeah. And I that's, try to, I didn't try to outrun the cop, which I could have because my car was faster than his. Right. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. his lights on and I pulled over because I realized how fast I was going. I, you know, if, if I thought that getting pulled over was going to result in something else, like I was going to get attacked or beat up or God knows what, maybe I would have kept going, right? Right. What's interesting to me listening to you, um, Andrew and Braden, if I may, Tess, is to think about how the egregious nature, the inhumane nature of police brutality in the United States has occasioned in this moment a very close examination of those practices. And we've, we've seen that this upswell of um, outrage has led to meaningful policy change, the, the outlawing in certain cases of the chokehold and so on and so forth. So the, the case of police brutality really cannot be um, examined uh, closely enough. What's interesting to me though, is to hear both of you describe those experiences and then sort of zoom out to the ways in which your privilege has been a source of safety in your encounters with the police specifically. And in so many other ways and in so many echoing ways has been a source of safety in other, in other encounters and endeavors as well. I think in the same way that so many of us have not asked the question, do I feel safe when I'm pulled over? We also haven't asked the question, do I feel safe when I am? Drew, you're talking about your, the, the sense of, of just indignation that you feel when you imagine a compromise of your very selfhood and the sovereignty of your selfhood. And yet it is, it is that condition of compromise. It is literally that mm -hmm. condition of compromise that I think that has defined so many um, black lives, the lives of, of, of brown-skinned people. And just the awareness of that is, is, um, is, is, is novel. I was thinking about your industry in particular because um, when I met Drew, I'd never met a domain Sherpa before. <laughs> so I became very fascinated as novelists. We're a scarce class. You are a scarce, class. Are scarce class. Do you know, I didn't even know that you could get up this mountain, let alone be led. And, and um, what, you, what you will find is that you're going to get a very attractive mug when this is all over. They <laughs> will make you a domain Sherpa. Thank goodness. Please donate that mug to colorofchange.com. But anyway, so um, what, what was fascinating to me when I discovered the domain industry was something that Drew said very early on in our friendship, which was the thing about domains is that people, nobody knows what anybody looks like. And you said, you were like, it is one of the most equal businesses because so much happens on the phone. 
And so, and, 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 not, and, and not even that, so much happens online. So much is faceless. Mm-hmm. So much can be faceless. And I thought to myself, there's, no, there's nothing that you need to know about how privilege operates that you can't know from that statement. If it takes a faceless industry to experience a real, loving, a real, a truly level playing field in, you know, 21st century global, in the 21st century global economy, what does that mean about someone who, for whom it is a disadvantage to show her face? So every room that Alvin has walked into, if I may use your lovely face, Alvin, as an example, or if I wanted to get into the domain industry, and if I know that it is, that the industry is just specifically because nobody has seen me, then I have to start to ask, not just how do I feel when the police officer is walking to my car, although that is a very meaningful question in the United States of America, but how do I feel walking into, you know, an industry conference? What does it mean for me that the way I look might be a disadvantage? My very selfhood might be holding me back. And if, if only they didn't see me, I'd be getting on just fine. But as soon as I walk into a room, I've got something to overcome. I think this, this um, version of white privilege and, and black pain, if you will, this space, it is one level down from being choked out by the police in broad daylight. It is, Mm -hmm. but it is a version of the same thing. It's a choking of opportunity. And you know what? I mean, a lot of our regular viewers know Drew very well, and he's a firecracker. Um, But that's also what made him so successful. And Brayden, I'm really kind of fascinated that you have such a similar story to Drew's, even though you're not this cowboy people like to call Drew. Brayden, you're not a cowboy, but you sure are a very motivated, driven, successful go-getter. And, and- Let's not give him that much. uh, All right, we'll tone it down. (laughs) One adjective back. Let Tess speak. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, if that were taken away from you by your life experiences, you wouldn't be millionaires on this show either. Or you uh, might be, or you might be, but you might have had to have labored past thanks. and through other things mm-hmm. to get there. I mean, yeah. now that I, mm-hmm. you, you look pretty comfortable, so I mean, it looks like you've, you've gotten to where you needed to go, but I'm assuming that you've had to climb different mountains, and I think that's the conversation that we're beginning to have. Thank you. Yeah, well said. And so Alvin and I had this fascinating two-hour conversation last week. And I really liked, you know, first we chit-chatted. And I think, Alvin, I think you knew darn well why I was calling. And (laughs) finally, I just said, I want it. What did I say? You laughed at me. But in a nice way. We laughed together. Um, Well, she, it was, it was one of, it was like the, let's just say it wasn't factually the 90th call but it was like the 90th <laughs> call like so i but it was the reach out it was the reach out it was the reach yeah. out alvin right. it's my fault i told people to do that <laughs> right. well and, and and so what what's what's interesting and i will say let me set it up this way my life has been based around one word not that other words didn't matter but one word assimilation when so when i leave out of the four uh, my four walls i have to be on alert of other people 
Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the reality is, you know, it's like if I go walking down a street and there's a white woman or any other non-black person, I've got to kind of bow up, smile big, make sure, because I want to put them at rest that I'm not a threat or I may cross the street. And so when I enter into conversations like Tess and I, I sensed it in the first couple of minutes, but I said, I'm not going to jump to it, but I'm going to allow her space um, because it, it takes a lot of courage, um, you know, to enter in to a space that if you've never entered in before, or you just frankly feel that, hey, I'm not necessarily great at this thing, then it can be a, a daunting uh, challenging task. And so I gave her space, allowed it uh, to get to the moment to where I was like, Tess, like we can have this conversation. And we both laughed. And I knew at that point, I was like, okay, icebreaker done. <laughs> we've laughed, we've exhaled, we've inhaled. Now we're at peace. Now we can actually move to begin to do the hard work. Was it all done in a conversation? No it'll be lived out, you know, the rest of our days um, in terms of how we live, what we see one another say, what we see one another do, um, and whether or not we choose to enter in deeper um, into that relationship. But as far as, uh, as in terms of my life, like I said, it, it's a matter of um, Drew and um, Brayton's story. What's interesting is I have the opposite effect uh, or experience in terms of being pulled over so I have rules about when I'm pulled over. If I'm pulled over at night, I turn the car off. The keys are already on the dash. My hands are up. And in most cases, I've already hit record on my phone and all four windows are down. Because I want, the, I want to put the officer at rest. There's mm-hmm. no button in here with me. My hands are up. The car's off. So I can't drive off. When they step up, there are the keys, there's the insurance, there's my license, I'm recording. And so it's one of those situations, as sad as that is to say, it's a, let me help you, help me help you, help me help you get home and me get home too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Breathing. You know, Alvin, the interesting thing is that, that, you know, I have the same protocol when I get pulled over. Same thing, you know, it used to be when you'd actually have keys. I put them up on the dash. I rolled down my windows. I put my hands up the whole, the whole thing, but I never thought about, I was never doing it to protect myself. I was doing it to put the cop at ease because I figured he doesn't know what he's, what he's, what he's walking up to, but it never dawned on me. And, 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 you know, 20 years ago when I, when I was pulled over for doing 130, um, I never thought about it again until just now. Uh, the why was that that I didn't have to be scared about being pulled over. No, I was not frightened, um, and it didn't dawn on me till now. You know why I wasn't frightened? Because right. that was my whole life experience, I was never right. frightened to be pulled over. Right. right? I was right. just pissed or upset or you know, but never frightened. Right. Inconvenient. Yeah. And and and, yeah. and that, that protocol that I have was really about them because they have a tough job. But I wasn't trying to protect myself. Right. That's, that's the thing that really kind of struck me in this conversation. And if I may, Brayden, you, 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 and, and Alvin, if, if, if I may, what, what you suggest is 
Alvin, when you step out of your four walls, you are on alert, you say, trying to anticipate and respond to and mollify the emotional reactions of others. Brayden, you're saying you are considerate and you want to put the police officer at ease. You, you are considering the, the tough job and the, the, the fear they don't know what they're walking into, but you at no point imagine that their emotional state will be weaponized against you. Mm-hmm. So you are, you, you are considerate of the other person, mm-hmm. um, you, and you seem like a lovely person, but you are not fearful of the other person because you don't imagine that their emotions literally that what is going on in their minds in 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 their solar plexus could in some way harm compromise or end you and i i think that the 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 mode of being that results from that constant attention to other people's emotional state is exhaust is exhausting it's just mm-hmm. it's not nobody really nobody's i think at this moment i don't think anybody is um what is so curious to me is to observe how novel and new it is for many non-Black people to, for the first time, come into a deep awareness of what that must be like. So whatever it is, when I, and, and, and this is what I wanted to come back to. When I say reach out, Tess, I'm so glad that you called Alvin and Alvin. I totally understand how your, you know, your perceptors allowed you to understand what the conversation was, was meant to be about. But I keep saying to people, you can reach out to me to ask me what you think you should do, but I need you to reach out to your people. I need you, having spoken for two hours to Alvin test, to call people who don't look like Alvin and who have no idea and have never been, have never been invited to imagine what Alvin's experience is like and to have that conversation with them. Because that's where I think allyship, to use the word that you used at the top of the hour, Drew, begins. I'm glad that you brought that back up, Taye, because I'm never going to be in the car with Alvin when he gets pulled over. Um, but that was a big word. <laughs> what? I said never is a big word. Oh, well, I'm never going to be in the car with you doing 130. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> but what can each of us do? And I think this is about building solidarity. It's about building this allyship. Um, You know, Alvin, you said this is the 90th call you got, but I'll bet those 90 calls have all been in the month of June, 2020. Whereas guess what? I've had 500 conversations about being a woman in tech over 15 years. Um, this conversation has been happening. And certainly, you know, the Me Too, Me Too movement made a lot of changes, brought up a lot of conversations. But this conversation should have been happening for a lot longer than 15 years. I mean, uh, this conversation about Black <laughs> lives and experiences. Um, but hey, fine, let's get it going now. If you've never made that phone call, make one now. If you've never reached out, reach out now. Um, and let's see where we build solidarity. What, Drew? I I had, I had, again, in this, when I call, I I called the various members of my family just talking about this, um, thinking it through. And um, both of my sisters actually had pretty relevant uh, stories, one more personal than the other. Uh, uh, My, the oldest of my two sisters uh, is married to a black man, has two 
multi, you know, uh, mixed race children, beautiful children, my niece and nephew. Uh, and uh, her husband was in a Rite Aid with the two children. And uh, a, a, a big fat white woman came up and grabbed the kids from her, him and said, you know, I'm calling the police because these aren't, you know, these aren't your children. Uh, you know, and that was in the last two years. Um, and she did proceed to call the police. And, she physically uh, grabbed? Physically, physically took the children. I mean, didn't, you know, but yes, physically intervened, took the children and told him she's calling the police. Started yelling to the CBS woman to call the police, which, which they did. And, you know, I, it all got resolved. Nobody was shot, killed, or ended come? up in prison. But that is a, 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 just a mind-bending thing for that to happen, that they, you're in a Rite Aid with your children. And her, the, just to be clear, the children are very light-skinned. One kid is basically white with a blonde afro, and the other one is, you know, like uh, with a, a, a good no, suntan, no, no. right? And, and, but, but the point isn't that. It's just that, like, well, I'm just making that point to, to, to at least say- It doesn't make a difference. White woman was I have confused, a friend, she has but, red hair and blue eyes, and, uh, she, 12 years ago, adopted a boy from Nigeria, and certainly no one's ever called the police on her. Um, but on but top she's of white, that, kids black. the yeah. police yeah. came. Like, weaponized emotion. They would call the police and they would be like, well, he yeah. says it's his kids. Get over it, lady. But hold on. It's not actually the point I wanted to make. The point okay. I wanted to make was to the point of this conversation happening now, and it was that I never heard that story from my sister. Nobody in my family had ever heard that story from my sister. My sister had never told a single person in my family that story until this movement happened, until I called and said, hey, I'm gonna have this conversation and I'm trying to think through the way to frame it. I'm trying to think through my experiences right. and it came out and it was like, what? what? How did, how did that never come out before? How is that never right. a topic? Right. But you're pointing to the power of this moment because Tess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that with 15 years um, having conversations about being a woman in tech have taught you is that you can't have conversations about women in tech only with women in tech. If you want to change the landscape, you have to have that conversation with men in tech. You have that. You have to have that conversation with men about how women are treated, and really, ideally, we would stop using the passive voice, and instead of saying "are treated," we would put a subject there, and we would say, "Let's talk about how you treat women in tech. Let's talk about how, in this office, we treat women in tech." So, those of us who have been involved in those conversations in other spaces can report from the field that you can't have that conversation if your goal is change, if your goal is institutional or lasting or systemic change only with the people affected by the quote unquote problem. And so no more than you could just keep going. You need the network, you need the support. I totally understood what you said. You said you've been calling these women, you've been supporting each other. And, and I, you know, as a woman, I've been doing that my whole life. So that this is in no way to um, devalue the, the version of solidarity that arises amongst the affected group. But for change to happen, we know the affected group cannot be the only group at the table. This call cannot be between 
me and Alvin, even though I'm not yeah. in the main industry, you know, my, you know, if there's anyone in your industry who looks like me, and I'm Nigerian and we're clever, so I'm sure there is, um, it can't just be that sort of like after work meetup. That's never gotten the change um, through. And so, the, you know, I commend you, I really do, for having this conversation amongst the group that we have here today. And I, and I pray that it's a reflection of the discourse that's unfolding in your industry. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Alvin, I want to ask you specifically, like, I don't remember if it was Tess or Taye uh, who mentioned it before about, you know, walking, I think it was Taye, walking into a conference and, you know, saying, you know, if but they didn't see my face, I'd be great. You know, I, I, I'd be doing great. What is your impression? in the domain name industry at a domain name conference in your interactions uh not necessarily among your friends in the industry um although you're friends with a lot of people in the industry but but just more more from you know at arm's length what is your impression of the domain industry and I, i'm going to frame that with you know i started this conversation saying that i hope and i believe that the domain industry represents about as level a playing field as you might find. And I'm sure there are others and I'm sure there are better, but in my mind, uh, as a privileged white man, uh, you know, it, it is a relatively level playing field simply because it's digital, simply because I'm in Lisbon, you're in Austin, he is in, you know, uh, California, she's in Phoenix, we're all over the place and and quite frankly it's rare that we're all coming together it's rare that we're seeing faces it's mostly done by email by phone and auction platforms right so there is you know with that context and with my belief and my hope that we are on a flip play field i kind of want you to gut check me and be like no nah, man you're not you're not even seeing it like you know this place is super racist right <laughs> I, I don't know. I only have my perspective, right? And, and, and I'm super open to being told that I am wicked wrong. And if I am, I, you know, let's have a conversation about what we can do to make it better. And these are the questions we each should be asking in our own industries, in our own businesses, in our own companies. Braden, what were well, you going to well, say? In our own <laughs> lives. Not just, not just in our lives. Like, that's the question we must grapple with is, you know, if, if I ask you, who have you had dinner with? Mm -hmm. And it rolls off your tongue. Well, I had dinner with one black person in the last, like the fact that you could count. I'm like, it should not be at that point. So it's a, it's a matter of, I go, yes, I love the industry. I loved all those things. But let's just get back to humanity and person to person how we live our lives. Are we living in such a way that is inclusive? Not that you're going to condone certain things, um, you know, about someone, but you're getting into relationship with them. You're working through the challenges, the, the, uh, the issues, the experiences. You're um, building solidarity and connection intentionally yeah. to create change and growth and a new future. 
and, and you're stretching yourself, not only not only that other person, but you're stretching yourself to see from a vantage point that you may not otherwise ever have would have, you know, entered into or even allowed to pass through your your thought process. Yeah. Now, to answer Drew's question um, in regards to, to the domain industry, you know, it, it's interesting to hear from that side. So from this side, I nothing and this is nothing against dan.com so please don't take it as such but i don't show my profile picture mm. on dan.com mm. and these are things that i have to weigh now a lot of people will go okay well wait that doesn't make any sense why would you not show your picture on dan but yet you have you know this blog in an industry you're quite visible you're on the show right now you're you're doing things that are visible and the reality is i understand that not everybody that buys a domain is from this industry so mm -hmm. so just to back up so dan.com is a place where you can sell domain names which there are lots of other places but this particular place offers you an option to show your picture and you yeah. feel that it is in your financial best interest not to. to not show who you are that that may impact how the negotiations go in trying to explain the value of an asset to someone certainly certainly that's and that's really alarming i i, I mean that's alarm is not even the right word but that, that, that's revelational to me right like the, the fact that that was a conscious decision that, that that's even that's a part of your life that you like are going to list your domain name just like I would in a marketplace and you have to make that conscious decision of am I going to post a profile picture like that right. that that is that's very profound to me that that's like I, yeah. I, I don't know I don't have words yeah. I actually that, don't have words for that and that's having Drew and that's having a blog a pretty successful yeah. blog um yeah, yeah, yeah. podcast you're, you're having visibility you're, not, you're, you're clearly you're not a subject closet. matter you're like you know it's yeah, not but when I, it comes I, down to transactional moments it's you know buy or not buy pay this price or pay that price and you're saying look i got my picture of my black face up on this domain name you know and this dude's like oh that man doesn't need that much money and i'm like he's gonna he's gonna come in with a lower price i, I hear mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying and that's fucked up that's right. really crazy i don't really have words for that that's that's crazy I, that has never crossed my mind and i highly doubt that it's ever crossed Brady's mind when he was you know, posting a domain for sale. No, 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 no. And I, and I, you know, I consider myself, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say expert, but I understand marketing. And, uh, you know, there are times to put your face on something like an email signature or a business card and then, and there are times not to, but it, it never crossed my mind whether or not, um, someone was was you know white or black or brown or or whatever um i have i've considered male female from a marketing perspective but but that's all and and frankly it's a it's a sad state of affairs it's really unfortunate that, yeah. that alvin that you would even consider that yeah uh, it's, it's wrong I, i've seen um you know, on linkedin you, you get like um particularly in the, in the domain industry you get um Indian developers and 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 domain sellers, and they'll post a picture of of a you know pretty white girl, um, because yeah. they get better traction with that, which is also kind of unfortunate. I've seen that, 
but right. um, but I mean, you know, um, to be African American and not and not put your put your face I, up. I, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've become racist against pretty white girls on LinkedIn, straight up. For for, for, <laughs> for, for that for that reason, for for that reason that Brady just laid out, like I I will not uh, accept friend you know friend requests or, or whatever connections on on uh, from pretty white girls on LinkedIn because uh, they turn out to be not pretty white girls. Uh, in the but, end. But I think this is what I mean about the compromise of selfhood, because Alvin, I, I looked you up a bit before we got on the call, and you, you just have such an impressive profile. The fact that you can't fully leverage that, who you are, all you've done, what you have to say, all you know, the fact that you are compromised in any way in, in your, and I, and I say compromised by, you know, external forces, and then internally um, that you hold back. And it's, it's something that is just so familiar to me. I was thinking, you know, shocking to Drew and, and unsurprising to me when I, when I moved to Lisbon, which is how I, I got to know Drew and his wonderful wife. Um, we have a, a, a mother's group, an expat mother's group. So a WhatsApp group, but nobody on that group, um, I didn't think really knew who I was. And I made that same choice, not, not to put a photo. And even, I will say, never to use a, an, ethnically appropriate emoji. And when I was doing that, I thought, why am I not using the, you know, brown prayer hands that I use in every other <laughs> version of online discourse? And the reason is, the reason is, I knew very specifically from my brown skinned mother friend that this isn't a community of mothers. I like to think that these are people who are um, predisposed if any such a thing exists to, to goodness, but still there's a bias. It's, oh, you know, she's a brown mother, so, you know, her children's issues might be different than mine, or there's a difference, there's a barrier. And not wanting that, for one and a half years, I just did not get to, you know, I am just an overuser of emojis, and I had to not do that. And it was ridiculous when I thought about why, um, but I never lost the sense that, that, I, that, that the obligation was not there, or that the, um, that the benefit was merely perceived. Mm. That never went away. And so what we're asking is just at the, just at the gate, just at the outset of the conversation, we're asking how do we become aware of what it's like to, to, to have to be compromised in these ways, number one, and then how can we begin conversations in our world about if, if we're not ready to ask, how do I change that? That's daunting. At least we can ask, how do I see that? Hmm. Well, that's yeah. And I, I'd like to tie in I what you said about... That. Go ahead, Braden. I would argue that that Alvin, you you should be putting your face up, and Taya, you should be using your your uh, brown prayer hands. Prayer hands. <laughs> you know, because I feel like, and and look, I I fully admit that I'm speaking from a place of white privilege. Okay, let me put out that out. But but she, really? I hadn't noticed that, Braden. Could you talk yeah, more about that? <laughs> be leaning in. I mean, if, if you continue to not put your profile up, even though you are the domain owner, right? And, and you're a black man and you're the guy that they need to talk to, shouldn't you put it out there? And, and Ty, shouldn't you put up your, your, your brown prayer hands and use those emojis so that people understand who you are and be who you are? My, but my obligation is not, my, but not if it, not, not if it, not if it, diminishes opportunities for my child, not if it's going to shrink Alvin's business. 
Right. The obligation of the individual brown person in a racist society is not first and foremost to educate, it's to survive. And then it becomes an act of resistance to thrive. Once you're doing that at a fairly consistent and you know, self-satisfactory level, I'm thinking like Obama, Oprah, then I feel that you can like Jordan. in. Jordan, you know, then, and perhaps only then do you, can we start to imagine that you are anything like obliged to take on the additional work of education. So after mm -hmm. my child's needs are met, after my questions have been answered, after time has gone by, because remember I said I did this for a year and a half. Now I have outed myself as a brown mother, the only brown mother in this group. These people have also stumbled across my TED talk. I mean, this is, this is the silliness of it, that my last name wasn't on there and eventually they found me. And of course they're like, oh, but this mother, you know, her talk's been viewed by three million people. Of course I can take seriously her mothering advice, but it should not have to be that. I, 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 yeah. I, I feel very strongly that black excellence should not excuse or should not, we should not, we should not rely on black excellence to mollify black oppression. If we can avoid it, many of us do. Black excellence, baby, let them see. Yeah. And, and but and here's here's something that I also want you to understand, and, and this is probably something that is commonly used or spoke to in uh, the domain industry in terms of a lot of the comparisons between physical and virtual real estate. Um, and just so that you get the picture that I'm not just entering just an online space, I'm not putting my picture, but at one point, um, decade, a decade or so or more ago, um, I was into flipping houses and got pretty good at doing it. Um, but then an interesting thing happened to where I started to notice, I was like, this is interesting. I started kind of talking to different people and noticing, huh, you're getting better rates than me. And I know that I have a credit score that should allow me to get this rate. And so I went, we tried a little experiment. Cash purchase, I went to go purchase a home, $60,000 cash. Couldn't do it. It's like, huh. It's like, okay. I go send a friend in who's white, white male. He gets it, buys it, comes back. He says, here's your $15,000. We deed the house from him to me. And that's how we did business from that day forward. Yep. Yep. Send a friend. And so when when you talk about reviving, that brings on a whole, whole new definition. And mm -hmm. I go, I, if if these are the rules that you're going to place upon me, better you, you better better be sure and certain that those are the rules you want to play by because Lord willing, I get an ally on my side, as my friend was, and these were cash purchases. Right. I'll send him in. Right. And he couldn't believe it. And right. that's where the rest of us come in. So, you know, Alvin, you have built this incredible career for yourself, but what Taye was saying, you're not able to fully leverage it as much as other people on this call could. And that's where it's our role to have conversations and to find where can I 
support and create change. Even Drew earlier, you were saying, you know, some of this makes you angry and anger is a motivator for change. Um, and whether, I mean, like right now, I literally felt sick when you told that story. I can feel it in my stomach. That's disturbing. Yeah. Um, and, um, but then we do something with that. Um, and if we don't know what to do, it's cause we need to get on the phone and say, you know, I think, <laughs> I think my words to Alvin, I was like, I want to talk to you, but I don't know how. Right. And we both just burst out laughing. I said, what do you mean you don't know how? You're talking to me right now. And I kind of, you know, I kind of played into it because it was just like, I understand you're comfortable, but let's stay in this moment for a minute. Yeah. I'm here for you. I'm not going to bash you. We're going to get through this together. Yeah. Right. right. And you need that. You, you need a safe space. Oh, Drew, I didn't mean to cut you off. I've, no, I've, no, 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 please. No. But I was just going to say, I think people need a safe space. I, Drew, I remember, if, if you don't mind my sharing, when you called me, we were talking about a, a reflection that Drew had from high school. And I, you and I you can about share whatever. I, I'm here to be, you know, the, 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 the sacrificial lamb. Uh, okay. No, I get that. Uh, also, I, I feel like, yeah. No, history has shown when you get to the altar, you're probably not going to be killed anyway. So it's cool. I'm just going <laughs> to. That's why I'm not worried. That's why yeah. I'm not worried. No, that's, that's cool. I yeah. myself for sacrificial lamb. If I Virginia. Know no, I get that. <laughs> cool. So, so uh, Drew called me, and um, we were both high school ath athletes, and was reflecting on a thought that he'd had as a high school wrestler, which was even though I am so gifted, I'm a little bit uh, wary about wrestling a black wrestler. And I said, yeah, be because you know we've all inherited this belief system, this this thing that we're calling racism. We like to we like to think of it as embodied in a human being and as distillable to a single emotion. But it's a set of beliefs, one of which is black men are scary. This is one of the fundamental tenets of that belief system. Nobody has to think it. It's a thought that is out there absent a thinker. So when Alvin is making that determination, do I go and get the house or do I send a friend? I literally want a t-shirt that's gonna be like, send a friend. <laughs> <laughs> you, you send the friend because you know walking in the door whatever beliefs have just drifted consciously or unconsciously into the mind of the person who's sitting in front of you about black men will not work in your favor and what drew was reflecting on so bravely and so beautifully was the extent to which as a high school wrestler with not you know unaware of a single actively racist belief still that still that resided within the awareness and that led me to um, a rather trite and yet I would argue useful metaphor. I said, ra racism, if we just take away the racist, if we take away the person, the offender, the woman that you've called a big fat white woman snatching up people's kids in Rite Aid or CVS, <laughs> if we just set her aside and we just focus instead on the beliefs that are motivating her behavior and the police officer who lets you go with the joint in your mirror and you know kneels on the neck of a different man if we just look at the beliefs we can think of racism like electricity so i said it's always running through the house the beliefs are always in the background sometimes we're charging our phone and then we're aware that there's electricity in the house and sometimes the lights are off so we're not aware we're not we don't see it we don't hear it we don't think about it until somebody gets electrocuted and then we're like this thing is dangerous 
And I was suggesting that racism works that way. It's just running, it's running in the background. Our, our, our awareness of it and its effects are different. For Alvin, I'm gonna, am I gonna get that house with 60,000 in cash or does it need to be my friend? With everything that I have going for me, if I put my picture, is that gonna lead to fewer sales? This is electricity. You don't need a single person to be mean or racist or, or to harbor bias against you to have to ask yourself those questions. And I think that teenage Drew, who was a little bit wary about getting on the mat with a black wrestler, was, was feeling that current in that moment. And in many other moments, it's dormant. In many other moments, you're not aware of it. But the work, I think, the starting work, the starter kit for this moment is just to become aware of that whether or not you're being electrocuted or whether or not you're being empowered, this electricity is always running. And to start to ask yourself, how does it affect me? How does it help me? How does it hurt me? How does it harm me? How does it harm others? That is the conversation, I keep repeating it, that can't just happen for women in tech. It, has to, it can't just happen for people with brown prayer or hand emoji. It has to happen across the culture. So we start to ask, how do we take down this tower? So on, on, I mean, on that note, so you know, we, we call that implicit bias. Right. And um, so I, I want it for, for the viewers, I would suggest taking an implicit bias test, which Harvard has put one online. It's implicit.harvard.edu. Uh, and uh, I think it's called the, the, the project, uh, hold up, project Implicit Social Attitudes. And you can go in and, okay. and it's free and, and it, you just answer a bunch of questions. And, it, and what it'll show you is your implicit bias because we we all have it we all have it we it's just all a fascinating yeah, thank you for really pointing that out I, I, I really would like i'm sorry i spoke over you no i was just i was just repeating the address implicit.harvard.edu have you taken the test Braden? Uh, i did but it, it's been a few years um my, my uh, this isn't something that they posted just now in this moment to uh, as a response. I'm sorry. This isn't something that Harvard posted now in this moment as a response. Oh no, okay. no, no, no. Understood. Is, Understood. Uh, copyright 2011. Okay. It's been up for a while. Um, I learned about it. My, my wife um, uh, wrote a book um, a few years ago. Um, suddenly the title of the book escapes me. Um, it was about, it, oh, Jesus. But do you know uh, Sorry, birthday? Lisa. <laughs> do you know your kid's birthday? While you're thinking about that, I, I, I think what I Suspicion Nation. Suspicion Nation. Um, and uh, she wrote a lot about implicit bias. Um, uh, it, was, it was, this is just after the, the Trayvon Martin case. And, um, so, you know, I read her book and was, was there every day as she was doing her research. And I learned a lot about this at the time. It's kind of opened up my eyes to, to this problem, which, you know, I just didn't realize was as much of a, of a problem because, you know, I don't consider myself racist. And, and, uh, but I certainly have these implicit biases as we all do. Yeah, yeah. So I would like, I mean, you know, not necessarily uh, right now in this moment but it's like i really want to understand uh where did that intimidation come from because because you know that story of my you know being a wrestler and being intimidated by wrestling black wrestlers uh 
you know, it, it's really nothing that is I even thought about since that time until this conversation started, until we were, you know, I was trying to think about my biases, my inherent biases um, that I'm not aware of. And I, I tell you, I, you know, I've been thinking about it since you and I talked and I told you that story. I've been trying to think about it, like, where did that come from? And I don't have an answer. And so it's like, I, I have a problem with that because you can't fix something if you don't know the source of the problem. And so, you know- You know the source of the problem, Drew. You just, you, you just, well, can't, well, I, you just I, can't name- scale, In a grander scale, you're absolutely right. It's out there. It, it is electricity. It's exactly, it's a great analogy. But what about in my very, very specific life, right? I, I grew up in Barrington, Rhode Island. It's, you know, there was like four black kids in my school out of 400. Uh, you know, I was in a very white community. I didn't have a lot of exposure to black people other than going to New York with my father, traveling, you know, whatever other things. But in my little world, in my little community, I didn't have a lot of black exposure. I had Bobby and Heather, my two friends, who were black, uh, and uh, I think they mostly liked me because I had the biggest butt, and they really liked me. They really did. Uh, but uh, you know, and that right, right there, that little joke is is also a little bit of an implied bias, right? So, so, but uh, I, I I can't for the life of me. I never got beat up by a black guy. I never watched a friend get beat up by a black guy. I never, you know, I I, I didn't have much interaction we had one kid on my football team he was a wide receiver hell of a wide receiver faster than everybody else on the team i mean i didn't have any problem with him you i was never intimidated school, by him you, you went to high school in the what the 50s the 60s no you went to, you went to high school in the in the 90s <laughs> no but in rhode island in a little you know white suburban town yeah but but did and, you listen to hip-hop yes predominantly hip-hop actually Okay, so then you had exposure to cultural messaging about blackness. You don't need to be exposed to black people in the United States of America to be exposed to American notions of blackness. And yeah. that's where that's where your understanding. But why specifically would it express itself in that way, right? Because I wasn't intimidated to walk down the street and I see a black man, I'm across the street. That never even crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. But getting out on the mat mm -hmm. with a black man and wrestling and I was a very good wrestler. I was better than most of the people that I was wrestling against. I believe I was second in the state in my weight class. So I had no reason to be intimidated by, there was very few people I needed to be intimidated by. Right. But yet there was, and I really don't, I don't have an answer for it. I really don't. I don't know why my very specific bias developed there. Hey, Drew. So, so just a question. Um, <laughs> What happens when you lose power Drop it. control? What happens when I lose power and control? For you personally? I get extremely anxious. I get aggressive and anxious. And lash out. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> so, so think about that. Uh, I mean, let that, let that sit and marinate to go, mm -hmm. what happens when I lose power and control. Mm -hmm. Because somewhere in the, in the midst mm -hmm. of this, um, there is a fear. Absolutely. That fear, fear is, if we boil it all down, that's what it is, right? It's like, 
So, so but the, the part I don't understand is, is again coming my very, 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 very unique, specific, maybe not unique, but specific situation is that, you know, I consider myself like an apex competitor. I live for competition. And I think very much in the way that Michael Jordan would tell you that if he were playing in an all black league, he wouldn't be happy. He doesn't want to win in an all black league. He wants to win. He wants every person who considers himself the best basketball player on the earth to be on the court with him, regardless of what color their skin is, so that he can demonstrate that he is the best goddamn basketball player on the face of the planet. And I kind of feel the same way in most of the things in my life is I want to achieve something great, but I want to do it. I don't want to do it because, you know, I, I don't want to do it in a, in a, in a with a, I, I don't want to use the word advantage because I have an implied advantage. You, you don't want but, any but, competitors excluded. You want all competitors, exactly. you want all competitors exactly. to have access to the field. Yeah, exactly. Except, so, except, except not in high school and not in that moment. But I, but again, that's the thing I'm trying to get to is like, <laughs> is that, is it, so, so Alvin, to your question, why should I get out on that mat and feel that I'm going to lose power or control, particularly if I feel that I'm a better wrestler? So let me ask, let me ask a question with the question, why should I leave my home to enter out into a world that I know that I may die? Well, because you have to live your life. I mean, uh, otherwise you might as well just hang it up, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> so I, sorry, ask that question again. So, so, I mean, think about this. Why do I, you said, why should you why get you, out there? Why do you have to? Why, or why, yeah. why do you? Those are two why different questions. Do I? So, so here, and, and, and this is beyond just the, the uh, industry in and of itself. Why do I keep living, going out these four walls, knowing that I'm entering into a world that I may not come back home to? The answer to that for me is a, a matter of not the George Floyds, not the Breonna Taylors, not the Ahmaud Arbery's. Great, that, 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 that's good. But for me, it goes deeper than that. For me, it goes deeper to a point of, there are stories that never have made it and will never make it to the light of day. Yeah. Of folks who have died. So my wife is white, her family's from Alabama. I've not been one time, and at least of right now, I plan on going. Why? Because there are roads, and if roads could speak, oh, the stories that they would tell of people, not only black, but white. All ethnicities that have, that have lost their very lives and it never made it to the light of day. Mm -hmm. The Equal so Justice uh, if, Initiative if, today, posted uh, uh, a report um, highlighting 2,000 lynchings uh, from the reconstruction period uh, up until I forget what date uh, that were not previously known. These were, these were unrecorded lynchings. 2,000 additional people who were lynched whose story we never heard who, who yeah. you know, that was, that's just such a crap. I mean, and that brought it, you know, it, that brought it to like 7,000, 6,000 something. 
And it's like, that's just so crazy, right? We aren't so far removed. No. From the 20s, no. 30s, 40s, 50s. Like, we aren't so far removed. And, and to a certain extent, and I, I think we said this the other day, but this device right here, for a black man? Changed everything. Life oh, saver. this is my lifesaver. Mm-hmm. I'm only one of these away from someone either catching my death or making a fool of myself. But if we didn't have these, because a lot of people say, well, why are these shootings and everything? It seems like they're happening more. No, they've been happening since the beginning of time. And, they, and unfortunately, they will continue. But here's the thing. They're getting before our face a lot more clearer and in greater frequency. Was it Will Which is a great that racism isn't getting worse, it's getting filmed? Right. I think that's, it's not getting worse, that's it's getting the way filmed. you put it. That's it. Fact. But you but what racism, you're responding to hold on, let's say that, that racism isn't getting worse, it's getting filmed. That's yeah. a great statement. And, yeah. And look at this. Some people are incriminating themselves. The Ahmaud Arbery case. That wasn't a black person that did that. No, it was not. Oh. And so that's why, to a certain extent, I'm like, man, it's the fact that this device is bringing it home, and then you couple it with a pandemic, and we have nothing to look at. That's the other side of the story is when you take away sports, when you take away gambling, and everybody's at home, and the next thing, you, only thing that you really have is social media, and we have millions of reporters that are out there. Well, now we got, now the chickens have come home to roost, so to say. And now we have, we're no longer distracted by anything else but the issue at hand. Right. And the ripe for change. Right. Um, You know, and just figuring out, and I think there's this really weird frustration. Like, I've seen some great memes or sayings that I can't remember about the pandemic and how the most powerful thing you can do is sit on your couch. But that is a powerful thing, right? But the innate frustration that comes with that, um, Mm. and then you put in front of everyone um, this other festering problem, and it really creates this moment of, of hopefully some inner turmoil and some opportunity to figure out a creative way that I, in my life, can impact this problem, can contribute somewhere to a solution. Um, So, I mean, what I'm seeing as my key takeaways today, not that I'm trying to wrap this up, I'm just trying to bullet point it out and see what else, is definitely, I love your four R's. Um, I think that this conversation has been heavy on reflection and that's really valuable. Let's see if we can move into like, what can I do today? Um, I can pick up the phone and call someone. Mm -hmm. If I'm not um, self-isolating, I can, or in the future, I can make sure to be more welcoming, inviting, whether it's socially, like, I am super extroverted. Alvin, you are super extroverted, but you're the one who came and introduced yourself to me at a domain conference. And if it had been a woman, I probably would have run right over there and been like, oh, hi, woman, let's be friends and make sure we both feel comfortable. Um, so, so we can do that. Um, 
we can see where we can leverage our opportunity to support and assist someone else. Um, what, what else? What else we got? Part of me says, look around, look, get even closer, get closer to home. You know, look around, look at your neighbors. Um, just a quick story. I'm out watering every morning, watering the lawn. And again, I'm on alert. There's an older white gentleman, probably had to be in his 70s, maybe mid 70s. And he's walking and he's walking kind of gingerly. And I'm side eyed because at the same time, I'm trying to make sure he feels comfortable. <laughs> We're going to be comfortable. I'm just going to step in my yard so you can go behind on the sidewalk. Well, as he approached and I saw him, he went out of the driveway into the street, but he kept walking. And so as he's going to go behind my back, I side eye, but I have a rule, again, playing life by rules, 50 foot rule. He gets within this 50 foot radius. I've got to kind of bolster up, smile, good morning, how are you? And when I turned to do it, we both made eye contact. And before I could even speak a word, he had a white shirt on that said, I can't breathe. Mm. I couldn't even get out, good morning. <laughs> because at the first time, it was, a, and he didn't know how I was going to take it. And so you have two people who don't know one another. And it was that moment that it was like, thank you for seeing and acknowledging me. And it was, we didn't have to exchange words. We couldn't at the moment. That was just how awkward of a moment it was. Um, I had the same, another experience like that. I walked past a person's house and I saw this big sheet up, but I didn't think anything of it. Guys working on a car and I knew he was watching me because why? He came across my radar. But as I approached, I looked over and there it is, hung between two trees, should have taken a picture of it. Black Lives Matter. We both waved, that was that exchange. About a week later, I walked through and he walks out. He's like, I don't mean to startle you, don't mean to bother you, but can I ask you a question? He was like, you mind coming to this side of the street? And it was that notion of what are we going to do to say, hey, can I ask you a question? Either will you come to this side of the street or I'll come to that side of the street or we meet in the middle. And it's these things that are debunking because as much as it is from the other side, it's also from my side of these types of um, interactions and experiences are debunking the rules that I've had to play by. And so as much as I'm wanting to ask from the other side, I'm also having to debunk some of these rules and myths that have been held probably my entire life. And so all that to say that there is work on both sides, but I believe that it starts closer to home, starts within our family. It starts with inviting people over um, for dinner. Our monthly uh, neighborhood, we have a monthly dinner. I can tell you every last one of my neighbors, first name, last name, at least 10 houses um, that are around our house. And we invite them in. 
Um, some of them are different, eccentric, unique, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> a bit different, a bit touched. I don't know. But what I do know is we're getting to know one another better. Um, and, and there are certain times that things do come up and they say, you know what, when I first met you, I really didn't know about you. Or I held this preconceived notion about or supposition about black people. Mm -hmm. But you help to change me to see in a different way. Those, those two so I, I hope this conversation helps everybody that's watching it to just see in a little bit of a different way. I mean, honestly, that's like, that's it. It's what you just said, man. It's like, just see things a little bit different way. I, I, I think it's also important that because of 400 years of oppression and the disadvantage that black people have faced and the tremendous advantage that I have faced, um, I think that it's really simple little things to extend a hand. And I think that, you know, Ty made a point before that was very strong, which is that there is absolutely no obligation for any black person to get out and educate that that is a luxury that comes with survival first. Um, and I think, you know, it does start with us, with non-black people. Uh, and saying, okay, uh, what can I do to help? What can I do to create, if not less disadvantage, a bit of advantage to help black people overcome the tremendous disadvantage that is systemic in the system? And I think each of us has a different answer for that, but I think all of us, every single one can do something, you know, whether it's invite that black guy over, black family over for dinner that you just ignored because you didn't know how to approach them. You didn't know about them. You were a little uncertain about them as your neighbor was with you. You're, or, you know, going up and introducing yourself at that conference, right? Or whatever i mean you guys are going to have better ideas certainly than i do but uh i think just the concept of like all right you know we've been playing with a tremendous advantage let's do a little something each of us to help overcome the disadvantage that you all face right and if i might uh drew you have been um operating with a profound advantage. And when one, one active thing that anybody who is advantaged can do is become aware of that and then to advocate. So I keep, I, for some reason, Tess, I'm sorry to keep coming back to you, but I keep thinking about women in tech. So I have a lot of friends in Lisbon who are women in tech. And they talk about things like heat-peating. You know, like I'm at a meeting, I say something, and then a man repeats it, and it's exactly what I said. And it's, you know, it's valid because it comes out of his mouth and it wasn't when it came out of mine. So women can get together and bemoan this and also i want to know who names these things because he peating is genius my partner does it all the time fine so you're around a table and and i'm using the analogy what can a male advocate in that space do a male advocate can say what you just said bob tess had just said and i just want to make sure we acknowledge that it was tess's idea there are these simple ways that in any one of these spaces that the person with the advantage with the access can become an advocate and it, it can only happen though with awareness you have to be aware of the pattern mm -hmm. and then you see it happening and you say, you know what I think we just did there? 
not wanting to blame anybody, not pointing fingers, just acknowledging that I think I just saw X. Can we move past it? Very, very easily done. Moment to moment, meeting to meeting, call to call. If you can't walk into the meeting yourself, can you be the send a friend friend? Can you say, Mm -hmm. you know, do you need me to walk in and get that 60,000? You might need more than 60,000 because if you have 10 neighbors at your house, I don't know how big your house is, man, but whatever, you know, can you be that friend who can go forth? So you can be an advocate in a group space always. There's never a moment when you can't do that. You can ask, can I, can, can send me, I'm your friend, send me. You can do that. You can have the conversation with people that you haven't had conversations with before. This, this leading light for me, I, I, I just invite everybody on watching this to go and do Harvard's implicit bias test. I know I will. I've also said, please watch this TED Talk. Racism has a cost for everyone. Because it comes to the last thing you said, Drew. You said we've been advantaged. Actually, in the United States of America, all Americans have been disadvantaged by this shit. It is true that mm-hmm. white people have enjoyed privilege, but the entire pot has gotten smaller because of this logic. You, you mentioned, mm-hmm. and this is the last thing that I'll share because unfortunately I'll have to go through, but you mentioned, Alvin, you, you point to the vagaries of the housing industry. The big economic collapse that we just suffered in this country in many ways was occasioned by predatory lending, but predatory lending itself was motivated by racism. None of us, none of us gain from this. None of us are getting out of this um, with all that we could have had. None of us are living the lives that we deserve because mm-hmm. of this. So I think that reframe, because I couldn't resist another R, that reframe <laughs> from thinking of this, we're advantaged and you're not. I think it needs to be, I am much more advantaged than you are, but this problem is holding all of us back. The, the issue with the, with the bank and the, and the loan, I, I mean, Alvin, your position was, you know, send in the white friend and, you know, get the better rate. My position would be, it's time to sue the bank, right? I mean, that's just where I come from. Because the thing is that by sending the white friend, the practice doesn't change. You get the rate that you want, but they continue doing this. And it, but it, this comes right back to what Tyra was saying: is that is that she? It's not the onus isn't on them to do. And, I, and look, I, I would have probably argued the same as what you're saying, Brett. But I think that's part of the the bias that you and I hold, which is that the onus isn't on them to make change. The onus is on them to survive and do what they need to do to accomplish what it is you and I do so easily. And or if you have a lawyer in your family, you know, you donate the services pro bono. There are lots of ways to get it done. But I think that the, 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 the creative conversation is to say, this has to stop. We all agree that this has to stop. What am I holding in my hand that I can use in the service of that outcome? And you know, the I, I wanna, in yeah. however many people that that happens to who has the life space and resources to sue, when we see that, we repost it, we discuss it, we bring it to awareness and make sure that it's not framed just like the Me Too, I just feel like the Me Too movement and women in tech is super relatable. Um, not that it's the same, but no, 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 that no, people but- who are like, well, I'm not affected by this black stuff, but they know we're all affected by the women's stuff. And it's, this is a much bigger problem. Anyway, um, I kind of forget what I was saying. So, so, so let me say this to so I So I agree in terms, I agree with Braden, but, it, but I also have to play this out too, right? So 
even if we do go after the bank in this in this given situation, even if we do go after the bank in this given situation, the person who so the the bank was in the family of the person who was over the city. <laughs> it, and so, isn't it always? <laughs> so again, I'm having to play out things in my mind, not to say that it was right or wrong, but this is about life or death. Even if I go and sue him and I win, I may find myself on that dark road or dark alley with a bullet in my head or back. So these are the things that I go, I may win, but did I really win? Now, yeah. that being said, it probably, I, it would have been a loss back then. Today's climate, yeah. a little bit different. I go, if, if that is happening today, by all means. Like, mm -hmm. let's lawyer up. But even then, in some cases, some people will lawyer up and go, let's see, let's see how, how much, how much uh, resources you have. Right. Yeah. yeah. We'll wait I, it out. We'll, we'll drag this out until you go bankrupt. And that's what I want to say. I just want to, before we move on, I just want to clarify. These are contingency cases. Mm -hmm. The bank, it doesn't cost you. You don't hire an attorney hourly. They take it on contingency. Okay. Right. Just so all the listeners understand, that's the way that works. Correct. That's a good clarification. Um, yeah, and, and for everyone else who is not suing, um, to know we have the power to repost and to have the awareness, just because one person had the time, energy, and resources to sue, this happened to this many people that right. didn't. And that's why it deserves our attention, our um, motivation for change. It's not a one in a million problem. It's a daily, daily problem. I wanted to say too, in the bullet points, I missed one. Um, Drew, you mentioned you just called your family and you had conversations with your own family that you had no idea about. And Taya, you talked about reach out to your WhatsApp group, to your whomever is in your circle of influence or look for, I actually slightly, um, maybe I'm more looking at it from efficiency. You said call the, the like worst person. And I'm like, eh, actually call the middlest person or what the heck, <laughs> call the, them both. Um, you know, but call, call someone who call them all. could actually um, I don't think it's necessarily as big as changing someone's mind. I think it's more about opening a mind that just isn't, I just wasn't aware. I thought like, well, I'm not racist. So I figure kind of not many other people are either, or like, I don't know. I just, I had no idea the stories that I've heard in the last two weeks. I just didn't know because I didn't ask. Um, I, I wish we I wish we had more time. I have uh, some economic data that I that I found. I, I you know my my passion is markets, economics, price discovery, and and I was studying some information. I, I'm not going to get into it now just because we, we don't have time. We got to we got to wrap this. But there's some really profound things that are are really at the heart of systemic racism that are driven by the heart of our financial markets. And I think that they are the greatest impediment to change at a grand level. I think that it's absolutely right what all of us have just heard and said about changing the person next to you, change, you know, opening up the mind of the person next to you, your family, your business, your employees, your colleagues, 
the people in your immediate circle of influence. But there is a much bigger issue. And until that gets addressed, um, you know, this will perpetuate. Um, and, uh, you know, just in two sentences, I just want to at least just bring it to people's attention that I was studying some graphs of economic data and particularly of inequality, economic inequality in America. And there are two points since 1963 till today at which inequality made material gap up changes, right? So uh, income was always unequal, but it was trending in the same direction. Even if the gap between a white family and a black family was material, the trend was in the right direction. And that's a good thing. That's what we want. But then there are two very specific time periods at which that changes. One is 1999-2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. And two is 2009 in the global financial crisis. And the reason for those major systemic changes in the, it went from a uh, 30% income and wealth inequality in 1963 to a 700% wealth and inequality today between the average white family and the average black family in terms of wealth and income. 700% difference between, I didn't know that number until today. But the reason that I found, I think that this is a reasonable assumption, but I do want to point out that it is an assumption. But I think it is a very reasonable assumption to say that the Federal Reserve of the United States of America is the single greatest factor to systemic racism that we have today, not for historical purposes, but today for perpetuating racism. The interventions that they're making in economic markets perpetuate and accentuate that income and wealth inequality. And the reason for that is that only 30% of black individuals in the United States of America have owned ever in their lives or do own presently a share of public stock. And when the Federal Reserve of the United States of America makes tremendous interventions into markets. They are directly and disproportionately inflating the value of financial assets as opposed to all other assets. And so it is disproportionately inflating the wealth and income of white people who, it's over 70% of white people white families own some, at least one share of public stock. And so the access to capital, the access to financial markets and the interventions that are made by the financial institutions that we've come to love and trust, uh, <laughs> in my mind, perpetuates racism in a way that is unparalleled. Um, and I say that, and I, I, and I really felt it was very important to bring that point up because we are facing today the greatest intervention in human history of any central bank and any federal reserve to intervene into markets. And that inequality, I fear, is about to be perpetuated and exacerbated in a way which we may not have ever seen in human history. And that is very unfortunate and i don't know i don't have an answer for it but i do know that we're in that moment right now 
And I do know that with that knowledge, at least we can be conscious about it and we can think about it. And maybe there is somebody who receives this message that has an idea about what can be done about it or has the power to do something about it. But there is an absolute, unequivocal, clear demonstration of inequality in wealth and income, which is ultimately the underlying factor in all inequality and racism. And it perpetuates that fear. So, and, uh, and reframing that information, Taige, I really, my key new takeaway today is what you said about what we're missing. Where's, you know, the, that lack of financial opportunity is denying all of us the creativity, the innovation of some brilliant people that don't have that opportunity that could be changing this world and um and we can impact some change to hopefully build a better future another generation that has more opportunity um do you think does anybody want to say some closing remarks i'm just so happy that drew decided to end on such an upbeat note i was really looking for that kind of like swell of hopefulness (laughs) (laughs) no no i'm really glad you brought in the economic piece i was just going to invite you drew if you could um distribute some links so your viewers and myself can educate ourselves a bit more on that absolutely we'll absolutely put them in the show notes the TED talk that I was referencing, this is the last thing I'll say, really, really makes that point about how e- American economic policy is so bound up in this ideology in a way that has not really, really strengthened the country. And um, I'm glad that we are sort of ending there because I think it is a very powerful point of departure. Thank you. Yeah, um, it does. It has a cost for every one of us and we can do something to impact change, big or small. Um, Alvin, thank you so much for being available to all of us um, and the 90 phone calls. Um, Keep it coming. Uh, Brayden, thank you so much for being here today. Um, Andrew, this was such an important idea. I so admire you taking the time and the risk to um, bring this topic up. And Taye, wow. you are a beautiful, brilliant human being. Really appreciate um, you, you dropping into our community. And I really respect and appreciate how many other communities you're doing this for as well. Um, brown, brown prayer hands. Oh, I did it at the same time. <laughs> so thank you, Drew, Tess, Brayden, um, for, making, for making space, uh, making time, being willing to, to go out there on the line um, and put, you know, your lives at stake, put everything at stake, all the relationships, uh, your ventures, whatnot, out on the line. I will say to our community, to any community, to all communities, that at the end of this, I don't know that this is much about right or wrong as this hour is about life and death. And from where I, I, I sit, from where I see, you know, like I said, the, these things, unfortunately, will keep happening. 
but the reality is this, and here's the hopeful part. Only we who are still breathing and living can make that change. The hashtags will, will pass on, as will our lives. But at the end of the day, 